I suppose it's debatable whether we have seen anything like this in American history, but among the casualties of this long season has been faith in our institutions. Surely you are seeing articles of all sorts calling into question all the things that we once thought were rock solid and trustworthy, and, and now for, for understandable reasons, we, we don't look to them with the same kind of assurance as we might have. And among those institutions that are now held with even greater suspicion is the church. And, and sometimes for very understandable and, and regrettable reasons. And in a, and in a circumstance like that, the idea of belonging to a church may, may be at best something that you think optional and, and at worst something that people might think dangerous. Why would, you, why would you be part of a community like that? And while answering that question about why those institutions and the institution of the church is held in suspicion is a, is a question far, into, far too ambitious for one sermon, I, I think at least part of the answer to that is that we as the church, the church at large, has forgotten ourselves. We've forgotten what's at our heart and at our essence. Here in this new year, we've been asking the question, what is it that Jesus means when he says he is making all things new? Well, today we're going to look at a passage, a couple passages from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, in which we're going to learn that one of the things that Jesus is making new is a whole new humanity. A humanity that is his church. And as we listen to Paul explain to us what is that new humanity, we're going to, we're going to learn three things about it. One, what is the nature of that humanity? Two, to what does it aspire, really? And then three, how do we get there? What is the nature of this new humanity? To what does it aspire? And, and how does it get there? We're in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4. Our central text for today is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision that's performed in the body by human hands, that you were at the time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, and he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. This is the word of the Lord. So in the 1970s, the 1980s, and as recently as just a few years ago, there has been a remake of a play that was written back in the 1960s by Neil Simon that eventually became a film in 1968. Uh, one of the main characters, name is Oscar Madison. He is a divorced sports writer. Uh, here is a man who uh, marches to the beat of his own drum. He lives in a sloppy apartment. He, he is a man unto him own self. He, he, he is his own moral compass, and that's Oscar. And meanwhile, Oscar's got a friend named Felix Unger. Felix Unger is a deeply fastidiously clean man. He's almost neurotically hypochondriac. He's the kind of guy that has you know, a place for everything and everything in its place. And yet his wife has kicked him out. And so Felix moves in with Oscar. And in time, uh, you don't just see those differences. You hear them. You feel them. The, the differences are more than differences. The differences are like a clash of civilizations. And there is enmity. There is anger. There is animosity. There are things that are thrown. And yet in time, something sort of remarkable happens between them. It's funny, isn't it, Oscar? They think we're happy. <laughs> they really think we're enjoying ourselves. Well, they don't know. They just don't know what it's like living alone, do they? I'd be immensely grateful to you, Felix, if you didn't clean up just now. Just a few things. The Playboys, us. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, I think they actually envy us. Well, they should only know. Felix, will you leave everything alone, please? I'm not through dirtying up for tonight. But don't you see the irony of it, huh? Don't you see the irony? Yes, I see it. I don't think you do. I really don't think you see it. Felix, I'm telling you, I see the irony of it. Hey, then tell me, what is it? What's the irony? The irony is that unless we come to some other arrangement, I'm going to kill you. That's the irony of it. Not your fault, Felix. It's a rotten combination, that's all. Yeah, I get the picture. I haven't even painted the picture yet. I got a typewritten list in my office of the ten most aggravating things you do to drive me berserk. But last night was a topper. Oh, brother, that was the topper. That was the ever-loving Lulu of all times. I had it all set up with that English Betty Boop and her sister, and I wind up drinking tea all night and telling them your life story. Don't you blame me for that. I warned you not to make that date in the first place. Don't point that finger at me unless you intend to use it. Get off on that back, Oscar. Now, get off. Off! Well, what's this? A display of temper? I haven't seen you really angry since the day I dropped my cigar in your pancake batter. Oscar, you're asking to hear something I don't want to say. 
But if I do say it, I think you ought to hear it. You got anything on your chest besides your chin, you better get it off. All right, then you asked for it. You're a wonderful guy, Oscar. You've done everything for me. If it weren't for you, I don't know what would have happened to me. You took me in here, you gave me a place to live, you gave me something to live for. I'm never gonna forget you for that, Oscar. You're tops with me. If I've just been told off, I think I may have missed it. So here's Oscar. Answers only to himself. Uh, lives by his own light. And then here's Felix, who is as dutiful and fastidious and as compliant as they come and in time. The appreciation for one another grows, and, and you might say that there is a reconciliation that happens between them. They learn how to live and to appreciate one another under the same roof. They, at the end, realize that the other one has left their mark on them, and for that, they give thanks. Now look, the, the, the play, it, it's slapstick, and, and the reconciliation, it's kind of uneven, but in the end, it's rather something beautiful. A beautiful kind of reconciliation under the same roof between an oddest of couples, the odd couple. Paul, in this passage, he's writing, he's writing to Gentile believers, those who have come to trust in Jesus, and he's reminding them of the status that they were in prior to that point, that in some ways they're analogous, if you will, to Oscar. They didn't have any knowledge of or interest in uh, the law of Israel, the covenants that were given to Israel, they kind of lived by their own or, or some other light. They, they were beholden to some things, but certainly not beholden to the God who is holy. And while at the same time that he is talking to Gentiles, Paul was also speaking about Jews, who again, maybe it's a stretch, work with me here, are not so different from what we think of Felix, who, who are very committed to cleanliness, who are fastidious in their observance of all that they've been given, and, and as a consequence of all of those laws and those strictures, they are prone, prone to a certain instinct to look down upon those that do not walk as they do, prone to a kind of self-righteousness if you do not subscribe to the same things they did. They were given laws to set them apart, and yet they kind of turn around and use it as a reason for a sense of superiority. That's, that sounds a little bit like Felix, but, but what's going on there? What's he out to do? Something happens between them. Something occurs that we find to be beautiful. And, and that which is the, the enmity between them, the, the things that, that at first keep them apart, it's, it's not unlike what, what Jesus speaks of when he encounters people kind of like Felix. Who, who does Jesus share his most caustic words for? It's not for those that have been caught in their sin. His most caustic words are for those who are most blind to their own sin, who need a shaking, who need to be jarred of their own sense of self-righteousness. It's, it's also why you find Jesus on a number of occasions either marveling at or encountering or including in his storyline or even deploying as an example those like Samaritans or Roman centurions, the people who are on the outside, but whom Jesus brings to set on the inside as if to be an example who are too certainly self-confident in their own self-righteousness. And what Jesus does in those moments by, 
by saving those most caustic words for those who are most self-righteous and bringing the religious outsiders into the center, that, that's a hint about what Jesus is up to. And what is Jesus up to? What's he doing? He's out to bring together the oddest of sorts into one single community, to form a new people, a new humanity. But a new humanity with one particular thing at the very center of their identity, which is the same thing by which he establishes that unity together. And what is that thing that is meant to be at the center of their identity, that one thing that even establishes that identity? It's one thing. It's this thing called reconciliation. Reconciliation at his cost. Look, uh, pick any group, organization, institution that you're a part of. There are any number of things that can stand at the center of what binds them together about what defines them. It can be a shared heritage. It can be a shared sense of accomplishment. It can be a shared aspiration. It can be a shared kind of plight or pain. Any number of those things stand in very well to stand at the center of what defines an identity. But what Jesus anticipates, and rather what Jesus intends for this new humanity is for one thing to be at its center, and that thing is the belief that you were in need of reconciliation. That you needed this to be true for you. And that you needed to believe that that was the one thing that would hold us together and to sustain us in that work. Look, in verse 13, he puts it this way. Now in Christ Jesus, Paul puts it this way. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In that sense, Paul was talking about Gentiles. Those who were, metaphorically speaking, far off, who, who had no place, who had no sense, who had no understanding of who it was to be his, those are the Gentiles. And, and in some ways, they are, they are stand-ins for what you might find in Jesus' famous parable of the two sons, the, the younger son who, who is convinced that he knows what he needs, that he convinced that he knows what to do in order to find the life that he wants. And so he goes off and strikes off and, and feels like he can set his own way. He, in some ways, is the embodiment of an Oscar Madison and, and maybe also parts of us convinced that we're good, that we need nothing, that we can take care of ourselves, thank you very much, and that if you will just leave us to ourselves, we will know how we can stake a claim so that we might matter, so that we might know our acceptance. And yet Jesus is here to tell them, those kinds of people, whether you're a Gentile or the Oscar Madisons of this world or the younger sons of this world, he's come to preach peace, your need of peace with the Lord, and then he will die to confirm that need of it. But at the same time, he is preaching to those who are far off. He's also preaching to those who are near. He says that in verse 17. He puts it this way. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now he's talking to those who are like the Jews. Who are so convinced that it is because of their heritage and their obedience to the law and their understanding of what he has said that that, that in some ways is enough. Enough to be confident about having God's favor in their lives. And, and that in some ways sounds a little like Felix. 
the one who can put everything in its place and do everything as it's supposed to be done and has um, all the regard for just what's needed at the right time and, and, and surely through all of his effort, everything will be fine. And then at some point he himself hits his own brick wall and realizes he's not enough. Paul is saying even to those who are near, who, who have an understanding of the Lord, but who think themselves just like the older son in that famous parable, who, who thought he knew what his father wanted and did everything that his father wanted, but without his love for his father, even he needed something he did not have. And therefore Jesus preaches peace to those who are near. Their need of peace for what only he can give. And then he dies to confirm it. This is the reconciliation that he means to bring. This is the reconciliation that he accomplishes by his own love and by his own death. That God, as it says there in verse 16, might create one new man, one new humanity with reconciliation at the heart of how they understand themselves. Now that all sounds very high, like way high, like you can't even see it how high that sounds. But what practical difference does that make? Why, why do we need to believe that at the center of our humanity, of this new community that he's forming, this new humanity that is birthed through the blood of his own son, why do we need to believe that, that reconciliation is at our center? I'll give, you, I'll give you just a few reasons. One is that it, 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 uh, it prompts courage. And, and what do I mean by that? What are, why, are you, why are you afraid of certain things? Why are you afraid to speak in certain ways or to act in certain ways? It's because, in part, you are afraid of, of losing or being separated from that something or someone that you think you most need. And therefore, you will do everything in your power to preserve that connection so that you don't lose it. You don't want to be estranged from whatever you fear to risk, and therefore you are afraid of doing anything that might risk that. But if the, most, if, if the greatest loss in this life, the greatest estrangement that we might ever know, has been resolved by what Jesus has done, then you and I no longer need to fear what we might lose by speaking or acting or loving as we might. That we would be then willing to risk what might come as lost to us, what might even mean the loss of what we hold dear. This kind of belief in reconciliation being at the center of our common understanding is meant to instill courage. It's also meant to instill something like humility. Um, for all the convictions that you might have, for all of the fervor that you might have, for some great truth, if you give yourself to condescension or to shame or to uncharitableness to anyone who, who differs with you, even with the same fervency that you do, it has no place in our common understanding of our common need. If, if you revile those who revile you, if, if you treat others with a kind of disrespect and disregard and dismissiveness for the way in which they treat you, you have to work really hard to repress what is true of you in Jesus in order to feel like you are justified in those ways. And therefore, to have reconciliation at the center of your being is to help humility rise up within you. And I think 
that kind of humility has a really deep, relevant, and significant implication even for this season of human history. Because I think with reconciliation at the heart of our common humanity in the church, it, it has this effect. It helps you to see all of your differences and your disagreements and even your enmities and estrangements through this particular lens. Let me, let me rescue my point here from a certain abstraction by putting it in a really stark kind of picture. There are those proverbial moments where siblings or friends who have not spoken and been divided and been estranged for a very long time are suddenly called forth to gather at the feet of one they love who is dying. And in that moment, in that moment of, of being gathered together there with one whom they love, who is on the edge of eternity, all, all of the decisions that led to the estrangement that they've been persisting in for so long suddenly seem to feel like a great waste of effort. There in the presence of love and death, all of those differences now seem rather trivial. We'll press that perhaps familiar illustration just a little bit more deeply into the theology that we hold to. Now imagine siblings or friends or family or spouses who are deeply divided and even at the risk of estrangement, if not in estrangement, now standing at the foot of the cross in the presence of love and of death and how that which is between you has to now be seen in a far different light, in the different light of what you both are in need of, no matter who's right or who's wrong, no matter how offensive one has been or how offended one properly feels, that there at the foot of the cross, you both stand in need of something rather common. Friends, what we are is a people who have been reconciled to Him. And we are in need of that to be at the heart of our common humanity. And surely he has placed it there and for good reason, if only to humble ourselves across our distinctiveness and even across the differences that are deep. But why has he done that? Why, why has he seen fit to establish us in that way? What is the point? Where is this headed? That's the second question we have to ask. To what does this new humanity aspire? Where is it headed? And, and you hear that in chapter 4, verse 13, when it says something about attaining. Attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we're to grow up into the likeness of Him who gave of Himself in the ultimate way, to reconcile us to the Lord and then to reconcile us to each other. Because look, unity, whatever he means by it, any organization that you've ever part of, any family that you've ever been a part of, you know full well that unity does not naturally occur. It doesn't happen on its own. There is no automatic growing in unity. In fact, if you leave it be, if you're, you're, if you're passive in that regard, it will dwindle if not die. It's something that requires persistence. It's something that requires your effort to grow into that unity, and therefore it's a work in progress. Look, 
on on day one of me being in Cub Scouts. My mother was the den leader. We had all the garb, we had the blue shirts, we had the gold caps, we had the gold neckerchiefs. We were ready to go, even the funky belts that we were ready to put all the, you know, the neat night little, you know, merit badges on. All that was great, but we didn't know a knot from a hole in our head. And so, yeah, we were scouts, but man, we had miles to go before we were scouts. Still scouts and yet learning to become scouts. There was still more to go there. And, and friends, look, that's the nature of this pilgrimage. See, if you think about the Beatitudes for a second. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's really tempting to look at those eight kind of different statements and think of them like we read articles these days. Eight things that'll make you happy or, or seven features of a, of a good life. And, and though what you find in the Beatitudes certainly has those kinds of ideas, what they're really doing is telling a story. A story of a pilgrimage. A story of a pilgrimage that begins with believing what both Jews and Gentiles had to come to recognition of, and that is that they had nothing to commend themselves to the Lord. They come to God with empty hands and only He may fill them. We all have to begin there in this story, and yet once that story begins, then it starts to take a new shape. Such that in time you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you begin to have new affections whereby you begin to love what he loves. And, and that doesn't happen immediately, and that only happens uh, over time. And then eventually you begin to be interested in becoming peacemakers because you realize that that which he has done for you sort of sets you apart to be doing what he does. And yet then as you get even along further down the road, there comes a point in which you have come to be so convinced that he is good and that his love is everlasting that you are even willing to to risk harm and revulsion and separation if only to name him and act in his way. And that's a pilgrimage. It's a story whereby what we're becoming is not the greatest on the block, not the strongest in the world, not the most influential as we could be, but becoming to look most like him for whom, most like him who died for us and was raised. See, when we start talking about growth in him and aspiring to our full maturity in what he means, in which we, we put away childish things and we learn to discover what it means to walk as he does, we're always up against two temptations. One temptation is to think that if I can just do well enough, if I can just aspire greatly enough, if I can just mature to some kind of level, if I can just impress him well enough that finally he will kind of look me at the shoulder and maybe begrudgingly say, you know, good enough, come on. If that were the case, his death for us would be pointless. If we really thought we could aspire to a certain point in which he were pleased with us, then that death seems to be a great waste of effort and of blood. So that's the first temptation we follow. But the other one is this. That, yes, we become convinced and we are comforted by the reconciliation that he has wrought on our behalf. But yet, in that comfort, we can, we can become convinced that forgiveness is the only thing that he was ever interested in for us. And while absolutely his forgiveness is high on his list, what else can explain the cross? What else he has for us is what is implied by that forgiveness, to go and become like the one who died for us. That's the point. That's where this is headed. That's this new humanity and the direction in which it aspires, which leaves us with one last question, which I think won't take very long, and it's this. So how do we get there? 
If our new humanity is meant to have reconciliation at the center of our being, and that new humanity is to aspire to, to grow in our understanding of who he is, but more so in the likeness of how he thinks, lives, loves, speaks, and acts, how do we get there? How do we get there? And, and for me to answer the, that question, <clears throat> I, I actually need to show you something that is the opposite of how we get there. And yet, which is something that in our world is perhaps the most attractive way to grow. And let me set it up this way. All of you have had mentors in your life or, or coaches or directors, and they've had great influence in your life, and they have sought to teach you their craft until it became your craft. And they've used all sorts of creative means necessary to teach you, but also to motivate you. I want to show you a scene from a film called Whiplash. It came out in 2014, and it's about an, an esteemed music school up in New York, and it is led by a rather esteemed jazz uh, director who leads jazz ensembles that everybody wants to be a part of. And this budding young drummer who already shows great talent and great prowess, he wants to go to that school and wants this jazz musician to show him how to become the best he can be. And in this scene, you see him witness how this director seeks to draw out the best from his people in a very particular way. This one really upsets me. We have an out-of-tune player here. Before I continue, would that player care to identify himself? No? Okay, maybe a bug flew in my ear. 115. Five, six, and. No? My ears are fine. We definitely have an out-of-tune player. Whoever it is, this is your last chance. And there it went. Now, either you are deliberately playing out of tune and sabotaging my band, or you don't know you're out of tune, which I'm afraid is even worse. Reads, five, six, and. Bones. Five, six, and. He's here. Tell me it's not you, Elmer Fudd. What are you looking at? 
Look up here. Look at me. Do you think you're out of tune? Yes. Then why didn't you say so? Jackson, congratulations. You're fourth chair. Metz, why are you still sitting there? wasn't out of tune. You were, Erickson. But he didn't know, and that's bad enough. It's hard to watch, isn't it? It's hard to watch because clearly the director has been able to, to draw out, to, to bring out some of the finest musicality from every single one of his musicians. And if you just think about the nature of an ensemble, it is out to aspire to be in tune and and in tempo and with each other and, and putting forth a, a real dramatic and beautiful expression. And, and therefore, what he's out to do is to produce in them a full, mature sound. And we get that. And yet the means by which he has chosen to do that is to use shame and condescension and, and disparagement and intimidation and fear. Fear to do that. And you know what? It works. It works in music, it works in all sorts of places, and maybe you've been on the business end of some of that kind of effort, and yet it's wrong. It damages at the same time that it's trying to build us up. Beloved, the new humanity that God is out to create, He is, like we've already heard, out to help us aspire to a mature sound, to speak metaphorically, to to lead us to that place where we are in step with one another and more so in step with Him. But one thing is certain of Him that I know is that He will never use shame and condemnation in order to pull that from you. Oh, He may speak fierce words. He may speak pointed words. He may speak challenging words. He may bring discipline upon us in order to draw out the best from us. But in terms of condemnation, no, friends. That that condemnation has already fallen upon His Son that we might belong to Him forever. This is the gospel. This is the good news. No, He does not give to us marching orders to aspire to become like His Son and then speaks to us with ridicule in order to bring us there. He speaks to us strongly and sometimes fiercely, but with love, a love that is everlasting in Him because we belong to Him forever. And that's why it says here in this passage that the Lord, in order to lead us to that maturity, gives us gifts. Gifts that He entrusts to those who are meant to shepherd and to bring mercy to us. He says there in chapter 4, earlier in the passage, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In other places where he speaks of spiritual gifts, he speaks of those who have gifts of mercy, like what we associate with our deacons and our deaconesses. Those are the gifts from God to lead us to full maturity. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He has come to lead us to that place to which we aspire by giving us gifts of each other from among us, from among the reconciled. Those who have no place, 
who would never look down or condemn because they themselves know that they too have been in need of the reconciliation that we're all in need of in order to have that at the center of our community, our humanity, our identity. And in just a few moments, you're going to witness our setting apart, our ordaining of three new deacons and a new elder who now will be your deacons and your elder who will come alongside you both to bring mercy to you should you need it and to ask you to participate in the sharing of mercy with others for those who do need it or that they will come alongside you and offer counsel and shepherd and pray for you and be with you and be a presence to you that you might then begin to imitate their faith and replicate what they do in whatever sphere of influence you find yourselves in. These are the gifts of God that he has come to give to you. And therefore, here's the takeaway from this whole sermon. And, and you may want your money back after this one. I believe what this passage is out to share to us is for you and for me to remember our vows. To remember our vows to this body. And, and some of you may be thinking, ooh, he's getting a little bit creepy, kind of feeling like George Orwell, kind of throwing around his weight, talking about authority and, you know, submission and all that. No, I'm not talking like that. Look, you know of marriages that after a certain season, they renew their vows. Why? Not to make sure that the other one's going to keep the other one in line, but to remind each other of the promises that they had made, that they might then, so to speak, consecrate them selves to the next leg of the journey in what it means to be a couple. And I would encourage you and myself to remember our vows, especially the last three, if you become a member of this church, that you would, in reliance upon the grace of the Spirit, endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Jesus, that you would promise to support the church in its worship and its work to the best of your ability, that you would submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace. These these are the promises that we make so that we would not forget ourselves. So that in the end we would see that to belong to a body is not in any way optional, but would also not be dangerous. Because it's then we remember our vows that we remember what's at the center of our being. And in that is hope. And surely in that is love. And that is what we need. For that is what he is making new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.